where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. What killed this patient? Anything but the injection. Oh yeah. Any don't don't dare point at the obvious. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here with Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. It's great to be shooting this show today. It's a very important show. I was just telling all of our guests that um, it's a heavy show because we're talking about so many really deep and dark problems in our Canadian legal and medical landscape. So today with me, I have a lawyer, Michael Alexander, and uh, Michael's going to come along and give us a summary of some of the, the legal proceedings that have happened. And then, of course, Michael is representing Dr. Crystal Lechku and Dr. Crystal and I have lived in the same area for quite some time. And she's one of the first doctors who came out and spoke and, and felt legal ramifications for her viewpoints. Uh, Dr. Mark Trozzi. And again, uh, Mark, it's, it's a privilege having you back on. We got to speak early on, and I, I always appreciate the vast amount of information that you bring. And then Dr. Patrick Phillips. Uh, Patrick, you've, uh, you've been brave all the way through. And so again, it's a, a privilege to have you speak with us today. Thank so everybody, me. thank you for coming on. And uh, it's great to be together again, even though we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff. We're going to go over to Michael Alexander now. Uh, Michael, thanks for being here. Can you kind of walk our listeners through uh, the most recent legal proceedings that uh, these doctors are facing uh, against the College of Surgeons and Physicians of Ontario? Yeah, sure, Michael. It's, uh, it begins with the restrictions that all the colleges of physicians in Canada have placed on doctors. They obviously got together and decided they were all going to do the same thing. Uh, so when I talk about Ontario, I'm talking about the entire country. So in Ontario, doctors cannot say anything contrary to public health recommendations and policies. Uh, they cannot provide medical exemptions for COVID-19 injections, except in the most extreme circumstances. And uh, they cannot prescribe Health Canada approved alternative medications for the uh, prevention and treatment of uh, COVID-19. We have challenged all of those on uh, basic principles of administrative law, which is the law that governs the relationship between government and, and, and citizens. And we've challenged it on, uh, we've challenged the restrictions on charter grounds as well. We've also challenged the college on a very fundamental basis, which is that it does not have reasonable and probable grounds to prosecute any of the doctors I'm representing in Ontario. And reasonable probable grounds is the legal standard for for the college. So we have two legal actions going uh, relating uh, to these problems. One is before the college itself. The college wants to take uh, doctors Trozzi, Lajku, and uh, Phillips to discipline hearings, essentially trials, uh, to try to take away their licenses. And uh, I was able to persuade the college to hear us in something called a pre-hearing motion, where we raised these fundamental questions of law 
which we think disentitles the college to move ahead with a hearing. In fact, if we're successful on our legal arguments in this regard, then all the charges against the doctors would have to be dropped. We were heard on those issues on November 23rd before the discipline panel that may in the end uh, be presiding over uh, discipline hearings. So uh, we are now waiting on that decision. Uh, we were hoping we were gonna get it before Christmas. Um, you know, it's just a day-to-day -day wait to see uh, what the result is going to be. We also have a second uh, legal proceeding going on. I was able to persuade the divisional court um, back in the summer to hear uh, Dr. Lachiku's case on the basis that the, just on the, ba on, on, a, on the single basis that the college was not in, in, um, in conformity with the basic principles of administrative law. And uh, I don't want to go into detail about what those are, but they're very basic rules about the form in which the government must make decisions. Um, you know, decisions have to be logical. Both sides have to be heard. Um, so the, these are sort of basic elements of due process. The standard of review in the court system is more relaxed than it is before the tribunal. Because in the court system, when you ask for review of, of the decisions of administrative bodies, the court takes the position that these bodies have special expertise and they should give the administrative or regulatory body the benefit of the doubt because of that. And that itself is a bit of a problem because that's a dogmatic position on the part of the courts and we're trying actually to pierce the armor of that dogma and get the uh, court to take a look at these problems in a new and, and different way. In any event, we were not successful in our judicial review hearing, which took place in August. We received a decision on October the 12th and essentially, uh, the court said, well, we've agreed to review this, but we're not going to review any of the basic legal issues that you raised out of deference to the college. So I think that that decision is wrong on a number of grounds. Uh, it's wrong uh, based on the very principles of judicial review that the court is supposed to apply. And so uh, we are about to submit materials to the Ontario Court of Appeal to ask them to overturn uh, the visual court decision. And so those materials will be submitted on Monday we have to ask for leave to appeal to the Court of Appeal. So it's a two-step process. So we are now engaged in step one. I'm confident that we will be heard by the Ontario Court of Appeal. And so we have uh, a very unusual situation where we have uh, judicial proceedings occurring on two tracks, one before the college where we are uh, raising the most fundamental legal issues and then one within the court system itself where we are raising a more limited set of issues. And I would add if, that if we are successful with Dr. Lutchku's case, then this would also uh, benefit my other clients and, and all doctors in the province who are under investigation and being persecuted, uh, prosecuted, I should say. Hey friends, are you tired of having leftism rammed down your throat everywhere you turn? Like you're just exhausted where you go into a business and they want to promote leftist ideas and causes to you all day long. I know I'm tired of this. And, you know, this is why we need to have new buying habits. So why are you buying coffee from companies that hate you and your freedoms? I, I can think of the day that I stopped desiring to support Starbucks. It was two years ago. Well, look, Resistance Coffee is here for you. I was just talking to Nicole in our production studio. She really wants to drink resistance coffee, but she's not yet gone and 
bought resistance coffee well look you can enjoy their wonderful taste and their fresh roasted coffee nicole with the knowledge that your money is not funding leftins causes so in fact folks resistance coffee gives 10 percent of every purchase to organizations that are fighting for constitutional freedoms for canadians this is partly why we partnered with resistance they have been gracious to us from day one. So Resistance Coffee roasts specialty grade beans, which means you're getting high and quality coffee that's roasted fresh for you. So be done with stale grocery store coffee uh, or uh, picking up your $4 uh, coffee cup somewhere else. Support Canadian Freedoms. Go to resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC and join the resistance today. Nicole, go out and buy it today. Stop hesitating. Go online. You can do it. Resistancecoffee.com backslash LCC. So, Michael, I have a question for you regarding the college. You know, if you take a layman's approach to this, just someone who would, you know, they go to their doctor, they would receive advice. Um, They would know that the college is there to protect them in some respect from male practice, the college is there to kind of uphold standards and give recommendations. Um, but it seems to me that what the college is doing in in silencing doctors of, you, you've already mentioned, you know, using drugs that are that have already been approved, um, and also just speaking against a very narrow. Uh, set of talking points and and recommendations like I think the average listener is sitting out there going isn't the college there to really protect me from like severe like fraud and and abuse and and things like that but they're also just recommendations in the sense of like they're also so I just did a I did a podcast with Deanna McLeod and she is um, she she researches uh, does really good research about you know ph- whether pharmaceutical companies uh, and their studies are telling the truth or not. And one of the things that we talked about was the the college is not there to be a representative of big pharma. They're actually supposed to be there to take a the wide body of information and then give recommendations to doctors. It, it just doesn't seem like the word recommendation is a reality anymore. It, it seems like it is, th- these doctors are mandated to do whatever we say. So it seems like this broad fraud, you know, physical abuse under anesthetics uh, uh, and, um, and like outright lying to me uh, have now been switched over to whatever we say you have to do. And and so the word recommendation doesn't even feel like it's in, in the atmosphere anymore. Can you comment on that? And, and, and are, are we dealing with normal situations here or, or is this a, is a very restrictive situation? Well, you, you may raised a number of excellent points, Michael, that, that uh, I should have touched on, but, I, but I didn't. One is that these restrictions are just recommendations and guidelines. They're not regulations. They're, they're not based in a statute. Uh, they're, not, um, they're not the law. And I've been fighting at the College in Ontario for two years saying, look, you can't try to take somebody down for professional misconduct based on a recommendation or a guideline. They actually have to run afoul of the, uh, one of the 32 items on the list of uh, a regulation where, where professional misconduct is defined. So you violate one of those 32 uh, items or principles and, and then 
they can go after you, but, but uh, these recommendations are not on that list. And much to my utter surprise, the college showed up at the hearing on November 23rd and finally said, yeah, by the way, these restrictions are just uh, guidelines or recommendations. So they made our case for us. So if we don't win this now, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the, we really will have to, to raise fundamental questions about what the college is doing, um, even more so than we have uh, to this point. Uh, the college has a core mission, which is really to protect the public. And that's largely in making sure that doctors um, are competent in what they're doing. That's the core mission. And over time, the college has um, been enforcing moral, political, and what I call scientific uh, agendas that have nothing to do with their core mission. And this is typical of the administrative state. Wherever I go in this country right now, it can be Health Canada, it can be these colleges, it can be uh, governments and, and, uh, and some of their agencies. Um, bureaucrats and decision makers are stepping out beyond the realm of their basic legal authority. And my job right now is to try to get them back within their authority uh, because they're harming people. And in this case, harming doctors and harming their patients. So, so you used yeah. a word, you used a word deference that mm -hmm. actually, again, that sends chills down my spine. So here we have a government agency overreaching. And then you're telling me that we go to court and the Canadian courts are giving deference to the government agency. So deference is a big fancy word. Why don't you explain that to all of us who, uh, who aren't lawyers? No, but why, why don't you explain the idea of deference? And right. am I right in, in being utterly concerned that a bunch of bureaucrats are being protected, given deference by a, a bunch of, uh, government appointed judges. Right. I think it's crazy. In fact, um, it, it's very hard to get a court to actually seriously review the decision of an administrative body and its bureaucrats in this province. And in fact, in this country right now. So the idea of deference is, is goes back to what I mentioned before, which is that a lot of these administrative bodies exist because they're supposed to have special expertise. So, and, and they are staffed by people who have special expertise. So in the case of the, the college, we've got doctors and healthcare practitioners and, and scientists, you know, in the case of, um, you know, regulating, um, you know, bandwidth, uh, you know, of our internet, we've got specialists at the CRTC in Ottawa. Um, it goes on and on and on. So we have all these agencies and bodies that essentially run the country. It, that's what you call the administrative state. Um, aspects of those bodies could also be described as the deep state. And so you would think that the courts would, if, if you brought a matter before the courts and said, hey, you know, this body has done something unlawful and maybe even something unconstitutional, that the courts would say, hey, look, we've got to rein this in because this is where the state makes its contact with citizens. So, so this is where authority is exercised. You would think there would be a heightened review of these uh, bodies and their decisions. But in fact, the courts say, no, no, these bodies have special expertise that we on the court don't have that. So we have to give them the benefit of the doubt. And we will concede to them that, that there are a range of reasonable decisions that they could make. And as long as the decision is within this reasonable range, then we're not going to tamper with it. Now, <laughs> <laughs> That's very problematic because I have never read one decision like in my 40 years of reading cases where a court has actually said, by the way, on this point, 
we think there are three ways this matter could have been decided. And uh, they've made uh, the decision at the, at the administrative body in accordance with option number two. So we're all good. They never tell you what the range of reasonable decisions are. They just say, oh, it's reasonable. And then we all move on. So this idea of deference has become quite uh, insidious in a way because the courts now, at least in Ontario, at the level we're at, um, defer to the body's interpretation of standard legal terms, such as reasonable and probable grounds, which really are within the expertise of the court and not the administrative body. So one of the things that we're fighting on appeal right now is to have the Ontario Court of Appeal say, you've got to take a, uh, a more subtle approach to this um, task of review. And if you have standard legal terms that are really within the province of the court to interpret, then the court should um, apply the highest standard of review in that situation. In fact, the Supreme Court in 2019 said that's exactly what the court should be doing when we're dealing with standard, well-understood legal terms. And so one of the problems we've got right now in Ontario is that the courts that review these decisions are not following the Supreme Court's recommendation in this 2019 decision called Minister of Immigration um, v. Vavilov. Okay, so one more question for you, Michael, and then we're going to move to Dr. Patrick uh, for a moment. So one of the things that um, I was informed early on uh, by uh, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom was that, of course, the government has to, if it's going to infringe upon the rights of its citizens, has to give demonstrable evidence. And from what you just explained, demonstrable evidence is whatever we deem reasonable, even if there are other reasonable options, we don't have to answer to those, and the courts are going to give us deference to what is demonstrable evidence. So it just seems super slanted and, and it, it's like almost into the absurdo world of, okay, so wait a minute, you can give a reasonable, you can give a reasonable recommendation. I can have thinking individuals give other reasonable explanations. Therefore, both of us should be able to operate because we've demonstrated some reasonability and that would make your mandates unreasonable and your evidence for them uh, uh, not demonstrable. But their definition of it is from top to bottom is, well, whatever we say goes and we're going to give deference to our experts who have we've been giving. It, it just it seems so threatening to our constitutional right. Oh, totally, Michael. You point. You actually point to uh, a key argument that we're making because when we took Crystal's case to the divisional court, which is the the uh, part of the court system that initially reviews government decisions on an app based on an application, um, uh, you know, w within that, uh, you know, they are w within that review. They do have a limited mandate to take a look at the evidence that was before the decision maker and determine whether the decision maker, you know, mis misapplied the evidence, misunderstood the evidence. Uh, it, it's something called error of fact is, is the principle of review. And when we got to the original court, um, there were actually no questions around the evidence. And then the decision, throughout the decision, on all the most contentious points around the evidence that we raised, 
the court just took the college's side and recited those uh, key uh, facts that were in the record uh, as if they were the truth of the matter. There was no review of the evidence whatsoever. And that was truly alarming, truly alarming. So, uh, Patrick, one of the things that I know that you've been concerned about from day one is patient care. In fact, that's that's some of the things that even the headlines that would be just you know reporting and, and reporting negatively on your stance. Mm-hmm. It, it even came through in those headlines that you have a real care for for your patients. So. Can you, you know, before we came on, we talked about what's something important to talk about. And you said, uh, you know, I want to talk about patient privacy. So, um, Patrick, can you talk about your concern for patient privacy? Yeah. So what uh, most patients uh, expect when they're coming to see their doctor is that their private medical information is held very confidentially. That's one of the, the basis of medical ethics. That's what most people expect when they go into their doctor's office. Otherwise, they wouldn't be comfortable telling a lot of people if they knew that people were free to rifle through their their charts. But what we're finding, uh, and uh, most people will be shocked to know, is that many organizations, not uh, only limited to the college, have a statutory right and that they exercise to freely rifle through your medical charts without a warrant, without your information, sorry, without your consent or without even telling you that they've gone and they've seized your files or they've taken them away. So like as part of a background for that, like in Canada, we have uh, section eight, I believe of the charter, which states that every person uh, has the right to be free from unreasonable search or seizure uh, of their personal effects. And uh, most people, and I, I mean, even Previous Supreme Court cases have stated that personal health information is uh, is is one of your personal effects. If you have a reason reasonable expectation of privacy, but they've written into these laws, including the Registered Health Professions Act, that uh, no these uh, these organizations it and it's it's not just the colleges. There's other ones as well. Uh, anybody who um, believes they have a right for any kind of proceeding can can take your your information. And this is a violation of, of so many medical ethics, and we're seeing the result, like the reason for that, more and more today, right? Because before, like before 2020, really, uh, most people would see uh, institutions like the College of Physicians and Surgeons as these organizations that are primarily there to protect us from bad doctors, uh, people who sexually abuse their patients, or or a surgeon who's killing every other patient, right? Like they would they would see them as as there to protect us um but these the the medical ethics of medical privacy were put in place for what more for what we're seeing today because your personal health information can be weaponized against you and it is actively being weaponized against you today right if you look at your vaccination status um People who aren't vaccinated weren't able to get on a train, plane, or go down to a restaurant. So your personal information can and will be weaponized against you to pressure you, to coerce you into to, to medical treatments and things like that. That also happened in Germany, right? And so uh, that, like, that was uh, people's mental like status as uh, as uh, disabled was used against them. They were euthanized. They were termed as useless eaters. 
And so it, as much as it might seem benign to some people, not to me, to take away people's right to go to a restaurant, that that's just where it begins, right? And so these uh, uh, people who get into power, they, to be honest, a lot of them uh, want depopulation, right? They see the earth is overpopulated and they've stated that. So do we really trust these people who are in control to have that information to be able to weaponize against us? And so that is where we're running into this so much before. So whereas before 2020, um, it was seen as benign. Okay, your doctor hands it over because there's an investigation. We want to make sure nothing bad happens. But now we're seeing that these laws, I would argue they are unconstitutional. They're un unconstitutional according to most people's expectations. Most people would be shocked to find that the CPSO can just come over and take their files without asking their permission or anything. So, but what we're now seeing, and this is what we've run into, is they've come after us and they want a list. They want a list of every one of my patients who got a medical exemption. Uh, they want a list of any one of my patients who received ivermectin or anything like that. And, they're, and they've, they've set up a snitch system of, uh, of any doctor who wrote any of those exemptions. They're, they're getting reported regularly and they're latching onto that and trying to find a list of any patient who might've been exempt from their medical program, right? Because they don't want anybody they don't want anybody to be exempt. They they put on this facade that uh, there there are medical legitimate medical exemptions such as myocarditis or uh, anaphylaxis, but that's actually not true. It's so much more nefarious than that because I have I've heard so many stories of patients who uh, their doctor wants to give them an exemption because they had myocarditis, and but they're actually required to go to a centralized doctor who's handpicked by the government uh, who's primed to reject that. So what they do is they send them to the cardiologist and the cardiologists aren't even allowed to write them. They are actually counseled to tell them to get a different brand. You got myocarditis? Well, here uh, you got with Pfizer, let's give you Moderna this time and see how it goes, which is insane. But that has definitely happened because doctors are petrified and they will lose their licenses if they write, write these exemptions. So, and it also extends to anaphylaxis, which is a life-threatening allergy that often leads people to stop breathing. Their mouth closes up and, and, and they're very much at risk of death. And what's happening is family doctors were banned from giving those exemptions. So what do they do? They, they created a, a group, a, a small group, a referral group of allergists who were also primed to deny those exemptions as well. So the family doctor refers them to these allergists. And what do those allergists say? We're going to give you the vaccine in the in the office or in an emergency room uh, where we have epi on hand. So we're going to give it to you anyway. We're going to give you a, something that caused a life-threatening reaction in you before. We're going to force you to get it anyway. Uh, but we're going to have some medications on hand that may or may not work. And I'm sure Mark can tell you, uh, I can tell you from my experience, that epi does not always work. Like it's not a, a cure-all for, it's the best treatment that we have. Uh, for anaphylaxis, but it's not always. And we would never in our right mind give something that we know gives somebody anaphylaxis, inject it into them and hope for the best <laughs> with, with a bit of epi on hand. That's insane. That's like, that's malpractice to the, to the highest degree because you're almost actively killing somebody at that point. So that's what people were faced with. And a lot of people refused that, but they said you can't get an exemption unless you at least try these uh, try these treatments. That's insane. But that's to bring it back to medical privacy. 
what we're seeing is a weaponization of your medical files against you. So these these organizations that we gave up those rights to privacy because we thought it was for the best, it was going to protect us from sexual abuse or whatever. Uh, and I'd say that that's good to protect from that. But the medical privacy is an inherent right and for you, your files to be protected from the government because they are actively being used against you to take away your rights to basic bodily autonomy. And, and you might have gotten away with it because maybe you didn't get any vaccine side effects, but there are other people that honestly, their lives have been threatened by these insane policies. So that's why, med that's why we've run up against this because we as physicians, I myself uh, have run up, they've, they asked me to hand over 17 patient files uh, and this is after my investigations were closed. There was no reasonable or probable grounds. They just wanted to monitor me. But my, like, my patients were not okay with that. And because they know that the, the college now it actively acts against their interests. The college has been complicit in the removal of their basic human rights and basic medical ethics. So they did not want the college having access to their files, especially without their permission or anything. So, so that's, we're running, we're in a very different situation than we were a few years ago. And so uh, I think it's so important that we get back to the constitutional rights. I mean, although, I mean, I find our charter is a useless piece of paper, but that expectation of being free from unreasonable search and seizure is, is so important uh, because once you give that up, they can and will use everything against you, your phone, your bills, your, your, your finances. Um, uh, they're going to take away your gas stoves and, and whatnot. The more information they have against you, uh, like the more they can use it to, to, uh, to harm you for their own profit. Uh, Patrick, I want to talk just a little bit about that before we go over to Dr. Crystal. Um, uh, you use the word weaponize a lot, and I want to give two illustrations of that. Um, if you just go on Twitter today and you just look at the Twitter battle going on between the NDP party and I think it is the UPC party in Alberta, one of the standards by which the new premier is being evaluated is whether or not she will promote and lead by example going and getting vaccinated. And it is this entire political weapon to say, well, oh, look, she she's not going and getting vaccinated. She doesn't care about the public. And, oh, she won't she won't do this. So then she's she's a bad person. And it's an exact example of what you're talking about, where the, the moment uh, the moment a, a politician can get the masses excited about an idea and then turn around and go, and that person does not go along with this idea. Uh, it is very threatening to the individual. And again, the other point I wanted to make was, and this weaponization, it, it, who were they weaponizing uh, these things against? They were weaponizing these things between often an employee and employer. So, so why am I going to you to get an exemption? Well, simply because I don't want to have this injected into my mm -hmm. body and it, my employer is forcing me to do it. So, so you take all of the, you know, who's the HR department at, at the company? Do they ha do I have a good relationship with them? Uh, are they looking for a promotion? Are they a man, a man or woman of moral integrity? You look, you take all of that gets thrown out because that person just gets to go check the mm -hmm. box, check the box, please. 
uh, excuse me, check the box. And so it's, you're exactly right. This is why this is so ridiculous and scary because somebody who just likes to, I don't know. Have you guys ever met people like this? Maybe are anybody on the call a, a checkboxer? Like I'm not like, I don't get satisfaction by checking off a list, but some people find great. I got home and 15 people got their passports today because they checked the box of being able to come in the office and put on their mask. Like some people just find satisfaction in that. And that type of person has complete control of your life without knowing you at all. And, and, and this brings up an issue and Crystal, I'd like you to talk about this because this brings up the other issue. Number one, it's weaponized against you, but number two, what we've also seen is not only these politicians virtue signaling to say, go out and get your vaccine or your flu shot or your, I don't know, certain, they won't recommend vitamins. I don't know why no one's recommending vitamins, but okay, well, we can talk about that. We are. Um, yeah, you are. Okay, that's good. I know. But you, you know what I'm saying? You don't hear them, you know, recommending certain stuff. Um, but Crystal, the other thing that we're seeing is we're, te- we're seeing en masse politicians giving medical advice as if they're my doctor. You have the prime minister of Canada saying, go out and getting vaccinated. You have every premier uh, of their provinces saying, go out and do these things. The last time I checked, not one of them has physically examined me, has any knowledge of anything medical. And like we've, once this happens, it is basically do what the state says from top to bottom. And I've lost my relationship with my doctor. I've lost my, do- my doctor doesn't consult me and I have no medical autonomy to choose my own course of treatment. So uh, Crystal, you know, our, you know, our family and you know that, you know, I, I've had a child who's a, a cancer survivor. I have a child who has a mild, uh, uh, a mild uh, version of uh, spina bifida. And there's multiple courses of treatment for them. Never have I been told I have to do this one thing. We're, we're always laid out. Here are the, the, the options we want to try. You're the parent. You, mm-hmm. you consult with your child. You, you, you lead your child. So, Crystal, can you just talk a little bit about this loss of doctor-patient relationship? Absolutely. So it's, uh, I think, one of the most devastating um, things that I've said. And um, so politicians, as you said, they are not medically trained uh, and, and they are also not seeing the patient themselves and assessing them, uh, which is, uh, you know, that's essential uh, to be able to help with their individual problem um, or the complexity of, of that individual in, in totality, right? So uh, the, the issue of having this narrow approach is completely absurd because in medicine, there's always multiple options uh, and, and doing nothing is always an option for patients and families to choose. But that's been removed, completely removed. So part of all, you know, all 
three of us as physicians, the trouble that we're in is because we're allegedly not recommending uh, this injection. Um, but we don't necessarily have to for each and every patient, and nor should we, uh, because each person and individual is unique and they have a multitude of variety of factors that lead to uh, clinical decision-making. And, and that has to happen between the doctor and the patient themselves. There's nobody in between that. You know, there's a dash or a hyphen, right? Doctor-patient relationship. And it's a sacrosanct relationship. It's a highly privileged and um, that relationship, there's nobody in between it. And the college has inserted themselves in between it. The government has inserted themselves between it. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies have inserted themselves between it. Health Canada has inserted themselves between it. NASI has inserted themselves. So now we have this huge bloated boat that sits between the patient and the doctor. And there's no way um, that effective, safe, uh, and patient-centered ethical care can ever happen. There's far too many interests that are uh, interfering, and it is, uh, they have then, you know, removed our fiduciary ability to do our, to our patient in front of us. And in fact, you know, the college is coming after all of us largely because we have stood up and challenged their lawful authority here because we all believe very seriously that they have breached that and they have overreached that and they have interfered with our ability to provide honest information to our patients so that they can make informed decisions. These are the bedrock, the foundation of all the, the value of what it means to be human. And that really scares me. Word that I was going to ask you before you brought it up. So I'm glad that you used it. And that was, um, there's a number of interests involved. And of course the term conflict of interest is a very important term. Again, I'm just going to do a bit of a shout out to my interview with Deanna McLeod, where we walked through and she, she, she walked us through all of the conflicts of interest and she did a hot, a hot, a hot chart of just like, okay, if, if their name goes redder and redder, they have multiple conflict of interest. And she did an, a number of evaluations and just demonstrated that once all of, once the bureaucrats stop uh, looking up to analyze and protect and then down to just recommend, once they're just in a conflict of interest where I own shares here and I've written this here and I'm paid by this study here, the bureaucrats just became just become a, a, a another promotional arm of of big pharma. And Crystal, can is there a way for you just to help our listeners understand what a doctor's conflict of interest might be? Just like 
because I think so many people assume, you know, I, I go to my doctor and I assume they have my best interest at heart. I, I don't really like I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I think people are sinners. So I, I assume they have mm -hmm. their best interest at heart and want to make money. But I assume that they're going to abide by the law so that I don't take recourse of action against them. But okay, all that to say, there's a relationship that I assume. What might draw a doctor into a conflict of interest? So there's a number of, uh, and it, I think I'm going to preface this with saying that it fundamentally depends on the, the physician's character and moral compass. So, so what is driving their, um, their interest, right? Their, their intention. And so um, when we look at who pays us, so money is always a potential conflict of interest, uh, the government, OHIP, uh, it's a one-payer system, go outside of that system really, uh, for small things that aren't covered by OHIP, yes, you can do that. Um, but the government itself pays physicians. So they're, you know, they provide us our, our earned livelihood, if you will. Uh, there's also the college. Um, these investigations, um, and if they can, you know, are not held to any kind of uh, legislated limitation that they have, then they can come after physicians. And that is of uh, interest because uh, our duties to our patient. So that can interfere with our ability to provide the most honest, open, um, patient-centered advice and recommendations for that, that person. Um, and then uh, on top of that is also pharmaceutical companies. Uh, there are lots of physicians in academic um, appointments and uh, centers that have uh, do presentations and all these other various uh, things for pharmaceutical companies and universities themselves. Um, and it, it, research, um, you know, I'm not a research clinician myself. I'm far more of a social scientist. Um, uh, that's another way to, uh, create a, a conflict of interest. So there's, there's multiple layers and multiple levels. Um, and I think ultimately, again, it does fully depend on the character of, of the physician and whether they allow those conflicts of interest to influence their interactions with patients. Um, and, you know, the three of us here have uh, no conflicts of interest uh, because we have not allowed any one of those things and in the public. Because when we're providing the best care, individualized, patient-centered, ethical, compassionate to each person that we see, that benefits the public the most. And we know all of that because there's tons of literature on it. Um, so we have no conflicts of interest. And in fact, we are all uh, very uh, rapidly losing uh, our financial stability. We're doing this um, out of the 
sheer necessity to try to salvage um, the system, the healthcare system, and the the public access to healthcare uh, should be demanded. To be honest, answers the question. You know, folks. Today in our episode, we were talking about all of the monetary incentives that people have to lie to you, and um, what we're trying to do in many situations is dig for the truth and. I want to take a moment to tell you about my friends at Rocklink Investment Partners. The team at Rocklink doesn't invest your money to satisfy a woke ESG goal or fall in line with the World Economic Forum. They invest in great businesses that will protect and grow your wealth the old-fashioned way. Get out of mainstream money and give the freedom lovers at Rocklink a call at 905 905- 631-5462 and send them an email at info at rocklinkwithac.com. That's info at rocklinkwithac.com. Oh, it's very helpful. And I know that you and I are probably going to have another conversation, just the two of us, about your personal situation uh, because uh, that's a that's a local story mm-hmm. that's close to both of our hearts. Another contra- conflict of interest is just having all the other doctors and nurses in your uh, in your hospital and in your practicing area, pressuring you just to go along and uh, keep your head down. What is it? Go along to get along? Isn't that the? Uh, uh, isn't that the age-old uh, song of the socialists? Uh, Mark, I, I want to come to you now. Uh, Mark, it's really interesting. You were one of the first guys I interviewed, and are your so many things that you said to me just seared into my brain. And I remember you telling me the story of how you, in the Emerge, you could debate with other doctors on how to treat a broken arm and what type of, I believe it was example of how to do a blood transfusion uh, for a broken arm. But you were, you were flabbergasted that now you can't talk about whether masks are effective. And I remember that story so distinctly. I hope I've retold that uh, correctly because, you know, if I say I remember it and then I tell it wrongly, that doesn't bode well for my memory. But, um, Mark, you've done a lot of research on this broad issue of ethics. And even when we were talking off camera, you started bringing some really important observations about the the harm that we, we've seen with this mass vaccine um, uh, imposition, I would say. And I just want to, if you can divide your comments into two kind of different areas, I think people just want to believe like they, they, they just want to believe that everything's fine now. Okay. Um, nobody liked it. The government did their best because they didn't know any information and they just did their very best. And now everyone's fine. Like, sure, the odd once in a billion people, but, you know, okay, that's normal. Um, And then you have this other side that is, you know, producing videos like died suddenly and, you know, trying to watch when they see very abnormal young individual have mass mass heart problems. And so can you maybe divide your comments into two, two sections? Number one, what are you seeing out there regarding the efficacy or the lack of efficacy in the vaccine? And then number two, 
can you kind of draw us into kind of your some of your historical research that you've commented on in the past with kind of how we've seen this in the past? And I know, Dr. Patrick, you you alluded to this a little bit um, as well. But Mark, can you kind of jump in at that with those two different thoughts? Sure. Sure. I'd love to. So um, where should we begin? First of all, let's talk about these forced injections. So obviously the three of us have done a lot of research. I could write, I, I have written the equivalent of probably three textbooks and it's on my website. Anything I say, you can check it and you should check it. Recently, the three of us and more than 17,000 other scientists and physicians signed the Global COVID Summit. 17,000. People need to digest that. And we made it very quite clear that these very nefarious injections, which are not vaccines by any standard definition, we can go into that, that for a infection for COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 infection, which had less than one in a thousand mortality rate, which had at best the mortality rate of a bad seasonal flu, which would not have satisfied the definition of a pandemic that all human beings understand when we hear the word and which the WHO quietly in their own books change the definition of pandemic so it didn't have to actually involve a lot of people dying so for a cold that had less than one in a thousand mortality and specifically that doesn't mean one in a thousand healthy people would have died with the covid 19 cold that means that the oldest most unhealthy most vitamin d deficient most multiple medical problem people often people who are almost dead already would have died in small numbers, like a seasonal flu. And if you recall through your life, you've never lost all your loved ones to a seasonal influenza, even a bad one. So using that as an excuse came the forced injection. The forced injection, in most cases, of a high-tech, pegylated nanoparticle loaded with genetic material to cause the human body its entire cell structure, including the brain and ovaries, including the unborn child's brain, if its mother gets injected, to produce the toxic spike protein, which is the most toxic part of a coronavirus and which is a poison and causes a disease. And even perhaps worse than that, triggers a profound autoimmune disease where a person's own immune system starts to destroy their body. Like, for instance, a lot of young people with myocarditis. <clears throat> so there's the, there's the setup. Now, what are the numbers like of the injection? Well, first of all, the two um, lies, which are a, a severe fraud, a severe abuse of public office, but you will often hear these um, minions of the agenda say safe, and effective. Okay, well, let's go with effective first. So what is the effect of this supposed vaccine supposed to be? Well, supposedly, it's supposed to prevent you from getting COVID. You know, like when you're going to Mexico and you take a shot for hep A so you won't get diarrhea. 
and you don't need the whole country of Mexico to take the shot before you get there. And you don't need the other person traveling with you to take the shot so the shot works for you. So, I mean, right there, people should be able to draw some extrapolations and see how insane this is. <clears throat> but, um, and before I say this, I'll tell people, if you don't believe what I'm about to say, go on my website and look up the term, just type in the search, burying the evidence. So if you go back to about last May, the Canadian data, which was still somewhat reliable, although it was heavily massaged and manipulated to understate the problem. But let's just go with the understatement of the problem. By then we knew that people who took two of these misrepresented injections were 2.5 times more likely to get severe COVID. We also knew by then that people that took three, in other words, that took a booster, were more than three times likely to get severe COVID. We know that around the world, the people dying in hospitals with COVID are almost entirely people who took the injections for COVID. We also know that that's just the tip of the iceberg. So in terms of efficacy, it has negative efficacy. That is not debated. We have invited people like Dr. Tam and the likes to debate us publicly repeatedly. We are extending another invitation to an event January 28th with Dr. Bridal and others and myself. I don't think they'll show up, but I hope they will. So it has a profound negative efficacy. Sorry, Mark, before we go on, yep. let's like, let's promo that event. Uh, can people buy tickets where like, is it going to be televised? What what's happening? Uh, so we're going to be doing uh, uh, four events uh, over about a month period. The first one in Oakville. And if people check in the next 48 hours or so, uh, they'll be able to get information and tickets on take action, Canada.ca. Uh, one of the great grassroots organizations of our, of our country and people here. Yeah. So, so in terms of efficacy, no, it has negative efficacy. It makes you much more likely to get sick and die with COVID. So what about safety? Well, this is even worse, right? <clears throat> and numbers don't lie. If you look around the world, for instance, in 2020, when we were all told that there was this new scary disease that was killing everybody, the, there, there, was a, there was a glitch in the story, which is if you look at total mortality around the world and in many countries, what you see is not about the same number of people were dying as always died. People die and doctors try to prevent that. And we try to extend people's life. And that's a good thing. But in 2020, when everyone was supposedly dying of COVID, the death rates around the world were a flat line. What you do see, interestingly, as soon as you roll out these mislabeled genetic injections, the death rate skyrockets. And this, you know, a great person to look into this is the work of Edward Dowd. Uh, if you look at insurance data, because insurance companies, as you can imagine, because of the bottom line, they have to keep a real careful eye on how many people are dying. Well, as soon as you roll out the injections in every country around the world consistently, dying goes up. And it doesn't just go up in the old and frail or sick person that might have died of COVID. It goes up in every single age group. It goes up in every single career, right? So these injections are by no means safe. 
these injections are by no means uh, efficacious. And anyone who is saying that these injections are safe and effective, at the most benign, they're misinformed. But if they're in a position of power, if you're the Minister of Health, if you're the head of the College of Physicians and Surgeons, you have a responsibility to know what you're talking about. So the people making these decisions, right, um, are committing, in my strong opinion, the most egregious of violent crimes against the people. So that's just a little introduction uh, to the data. I mean, there's a lot of other interesting numbers and there's a lot of interesting science. And, you know, I'm an open book and at your service, like are my colleagues here. No, we really appreciate that. Um, one of the things, can you talk about the cause of myocarditis with the vaccine? So I, I, again, I have had the privilege to talk to Dr. Stephen Pellick about this. And he, I think he explained it to me in a way that a layman could understand it. And that's simply that when your body produces these spike proteins in such a way that when, like if the, if, the, if the virus naturally enters your body, the spike proteins are still needing to be dealt with and they're often dealt with within a certain area of, of your body and within the lung area, but through the injection and then through the fact that your body is now the production piece of, of the spike protein, that it, two things are problematic. One the the spike protein is is there now moving throughout the entire body in, 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 which is different than the virus itself and then two it's manifesting on your cells so like like the cells of your heart and so therefore when your body then goes and deals with the spike protein it's, it's not dealing any longer with a foreign agent it's dealing with your cells and so it's actually attacking and destroying your cells have i re am i understanding that you're all nodding so i feel like i'm okay that i've heard that mark can you maybe speak to that a little bit more sure. technically uh for our listeners sure 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 so let's talk about three things one a coronavirus infection so let's say you get a coronavirus which you all have had and which uh, and now, because of the people taking the injections, there's a constant bloom of coronaviruses. So we're exposed to tons of coronaviruses all the time now. But generally, take a person with a healthy, unaltered immune system. Coronavirus goes into your upper airway. Now, that spike protein, so when you think of a coronavirus, you picture a ball with all these little spikes off it. That spike protein, that is the thing by which the coronavirus attaches to the human cell and begins the process of attempting to infect the cell. And the receptor on our cells that it uses predominantly are called ACE2 receptors. And some tissues in our bodies have lots of ACE2 receptors and some have less. Now, the, the reality is that the almost all the immune defense against the coronavirus infection happens by what's called the innate immune system. So the, the, the immune system right in the tissue, you don't generally get coronavirus flooding the bloodstream and flooding the body with coronaviruses and of course their spike protein parts that doesn't happen um so generally your immune system deals with an infection right in the tissue so you might get it in your nose and maybe in your throat you might get it down into your air your lower airways in that case you know you're pretty sick you got a bad cold the immune system deals with it if needed 
If a little bit of the virus gets by the innate immune system and into the bloodstream, then that's going to cause your adaptive immune system to create some antibodies, a broad spectrum of antibodies against lots of parts of the virus. That doesn't cure the problem. That just is a little extra help that the, that the innate, assist, innate immune system needs. So there's, there's a coronavirus natural infection. Now, I want to just pause and say, what's a vaccine for a normal disease? Well, normally a vaccine, a real vaccine, right, gives you less than 100 particles that are weakened particles of the virus you're trying to immunize against, and that will trigger the body to make some antibodies. And the effectiveness of that is actually very debatable when you look at, um, look at real data from the last 100 years. However, these injections right? These injections of basically Trojan horses in the form mostly of, of these nanoparticles, uh, they are designed to go into every single cell in the human body. The actual use of these Trojan horse particles goes back in brain cancer research a decade, and they were used to get special therapeutics experimentally into people's brains. So when, when, when pharma and their minions lied and said, oh, well, it was a vaccine, we thought it would just stay in your shoulder. No, that, that was by design. By design, this was meant to go everywhere. And how many copies of the genetic material does it give you? Well, it depends on the lot, but about 40 trillion. So less than 100 versus 40 trillion. So you invade the entire body with... Uh, genetic material so your own cells like you said your own cells start producing uh, not the spike protein of a natural coronavirus a patented hyper resistant and hyper toxic version of the spike protein so that's now coming out of your cells right so imagine a cell that's producing a thing producing a foreign thing that's meant to trigger immune response well guess what it now bears the marker it now bears the spike protein so it's a it's it's flagging itself for attack by the immune system. As well, the bloodstream is flooded with spike proteins. Now, spike proteins, where are they going to go? Well, they're attached to ACE2 receptors. Where do you have a lot of ACE2 receptors? Well, it varies a bit with age, but you have a lot on the lining of small blood vessels. Hence, all the blood clots. Hence, all the ruptured aortas. Young people have an especially high amount of ACE2 receptors in the heart, hence the high incidence of inflamed hearts in young people. Now, when they rolled out these injections, for instance, I personally have never encountered a young person with an inflamed heart, and I've practiced medicine for 25 years. Myocarditis is not a mild disease. It's a severe disease, even if it's mild. It carries with it a five-year survival rate, which is not good, right? In other words, a lot of people get myocarditis. A lot of them are not alive five years later. Since they rolled out these injections, we had intensive care units in this province full of young people with myocarditis, lots of myocarditis. Ask anybody you know works in an ICU. Do you see any myocarditis in young people in the last few years? They'll tell you the tale. So... Oh, and now Will they tell me the tale because like I, I still don't feel like we're hearing a, a, an outrage of this actually I, I don't want to interrupt your thought because you're explaining no, no, everything no I asked you to explain so but no okay you, you go back to it I just okay I hope well, we start I'll, hearing I'll, from them that's all I, I have to say 
Well, I'll, I'll wrap it up. And, and, and um, everything I'm saying is, is backed up in every form of science. And that includes microscopic images that you can see on my website, right? And others. So when this spike protein is flooding through the body and sticking to ACE2 receptors and causing blood clotting and, and, and damaging arteries, a lot of it goes into the heart. And so the cells are poisoned. ACE2 or spike protein is a poison in and of itself. We knew that from studies in hamsters from eight years ago, right? None of this is news. This was all predictable and planable. But the now that the, the cells have got, the heart cells have got spike proteins attached to it, well, what does the immune system do? It attacks the heart. So what do you see when you look through high-powered microscopes and electron micrographs if you do the proper techniques that no one in Canada is doing, but is being done around the world, and we have lots of evidence? If you do staining, a special staining which shows the spike protein, and you look for the white cells, you'll see two things. You'll see that the tissue is, you take the dead heart out of the young person, you make thin sections, you appropriately stain it, and you see that their heart cells were painted with spike protein, and then there's a profound immune response of their body attacking the heart cells. And that's not questionable, that's not debatable. Well, we'd love to debate it, but this is this is solid science. Again, 17,000 of us doctors and scientists, including the three of us, signed the Global COVID Summit. And that's just a portion. Yeah, and we also have previously the Great Barrington Declaration that, that was trying to raise awareness on this. Okay, uh, Mark, I'm going to ask you one follow-up question, and that is on these ACE2 receptors. So if I'm understanding your explanation, if I, if I normally get the virus – it's going to come in through the, na through, the, through the nose, potentially into the throat, potentially into the lungs. And in those areas of my body, I have a lot of ACE2 receptors to absorb and then deal with this virus. I also – let's just you – know, let's just play the game. If I was a young person, I also have ACE2 receptors in my heart. So – the virus coming in naturally, maybe in the most severe cases of the natural, would still have the potential of causing myocarditis. But it is in – I want to say it's in the normal path dealt with the normal way where that then is actually rare because my body has dealt with it correctly. But when we come to the vaccine – and You're it is an, or sorry again. Uh, I, I use that term just by reference. Uh, okay. um, when when the, we talk about the injection, because that is now so intense coming into my bloodstream. Now we're bypassing, we're bypassing all of the the normal reception, and it's then able to go into these two areas that are highly sensitive in my body for the ACE two receptors the the blood and the heart well and a lot of other tissues so for instance the heart in young people that's why we see so many young males with myocarditis after the forced injections but ace2 receptors are rich in a lot of places um, one small correction is the virus takes advantage of the ace2 receptor that's part of its strategy it's like it's like if you're a, if you know somebody who's into jujitsu and they grab you by the gi the ace2 receptor is how the virus grabs on right um which, which 
as, as a slight but important tangent is an important thing about children. Why Dr. Alexander and I wrote an article a year and a half or two ago called Why Children Should Be Free and Never COVID Injected. Children have very, very few ACE2 receptors in their upper respiratory tract. That's why children generally, well, they have a zero statistical risk of serious injury or death from COVID naturally. Once they're injected with this goo, it's unpredictable. Their immune system is screwed up. But what's really beautiful for children and why everything that was done going back to the masks and the mandates and the school closures was madness is children encounter the virus. They actually need to encounter the viruses present in their world when they're young. It barely can grab onto a few ACE2 receptors, so it can almost not give them a sniffle. But it does allow their innate immune system to encounter the virus adequately to train itself and synchronize itself to the viral environment in which that child lives. So that child is set for life and has the foundation of a good immune system to coronaviruses, right? So the ACE2 receptor is a very interesting part of the science, but ACE2 receptors are present in a lot of tissues. And this is part of the current scam of burying the evidence. And I mean, literally burying the evidence, because if you die anywhere in a year, someone dies even up to a year following these injections. We know from German work of Dr. Burkhardt that the government autopsies said nothing to do with the injection. Fit, initially, there's many more now, but initially 15 families said, this doesn't sound right. They took the shot and then they died and they were healthy before. They took the, the tissue samples to Dr. Burkert and he said, well, we'll stain for the spike protein and we'll do the proper analysis and look for the autoimmune attack. What he found was approximately 100% of the autopsies rejected by the government or the autopsies produced publicly by not looking for the spike protein. Like if you don't look for something, you won't find it. That's clear part of science. That actually the cause of death was the injection. And that was even up to many months following the injections. So the trick is this, that back in 2020, when more the same amount of people were dying as always, but everyone who died, or not everyone, but a lot of people who died, they did a swab, like they tried to get Crystal to participate in fraud and she refused to, which is one of the reasons she's here with us. They, they, they do a swab, the swab was a scam, and they'd say, oh, this person died of COVID, which would change the billing codes and increase the profit to the hospital and everybody else involved. But what they were really doing was taking people that died of all kinds of things, normal things, like how about influenza? Like we didn't cure influenza in 2020. It appears statistically to have just disappeared. That's not real. People died of heart attacks, motorcycle crashes, lung disease, 60 years of smoking, kidney failure, all these other things, but they swabbed the nose and they said, die to COVID, more reason to keep the people afraid and submitting to this agenda. But, now we have a very different situation. Now we're being told that this is a safe injection and now there's bodies piling up all over the place. The data shows it. There's more death in the world. More people are dying since these injections were rolled out that have died in world wars. That's, that's a real statistic. But what they're doing now is, okay, let's say you're a person whose kidneys are, uh, not you, let's say somebody has a kidney issue. So, the, the part of their body most vulnerable to the toxicity of the spike protein and the autoimmune effect is their kidneys. So their kidney failure gets worse and they die. Diagnosis, kidney failure. 
nothing to do with the injection. Do an autopsy, don't look for the spike protein, confirms it. Yeah, died of kidney failure. Another person dies of a heart attack, right? Nothing to do with the injection. The truth is all of it has to do from the injection. So now that we really have a mountain of death due to something, and that mountain of death is due to the injections, it's all being spread out and, and claimed that it's caused by anything but the injection. In fact, if you want to make money in medicine right now, which I don't, because I'd be disgusted with myself if I did, given the current climate. Oh, I don't know if you should give anybody a suggestion right now, because there might be a listener who might know. No, go ahead. What is well, that? Which is anything but the injection. What killed this patient? Anything but the injection. Oh, yeah. Any, don't, don't dare point at the obvious. You know, I've got some curves on, uh, on my website, and you could see. You, ro you roll in every country, you start the injection, people start dying. You start the injection, people start dying. You know where people aren't dying right now? And you know where there's no significant COVID? Africa. And you know why? Africans so far have done the best job at resisting being submitted to this deadly misrepresented injection. That's... Uh, I, I got to live in Mozambique for a year, so I'm, uh, I'm proud of my African brothers and sisters. That's 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 a, a great story to to end on there, Mark. Um, I'm going to circle back in our. By the way, I'm thankful for all of you, and I, I I'm I'm thankful for each area. I I feel like we could dig and we could dig and we could dig, but I we've we've been going about an hour and ten minutes, and I like to maybe wind up in the next ten minutes. So I want to go back to the law here. So, Michael. Here we have, um, you know, if I had have asked, if I had have pivoted from Dr. Mark to Dr. Patrick and talking about maybe further evidence of injury or further evidence of, of uh, conflict of interest, if I were to pivot back to Dr. Crystal and say, Can't, tell us your personal story and how awful it has been and how, how awful you've been treated and not had your lease renewed and very personal things. Um, we, we could go on for hours and it seems that the breakdown is at the legal level. And so I'm thankful for that, that you are, that you're taking on this fight. Should Canadians have a little bit of hope that there are more lawyers getting involved? What's the legal climate like? Are, are, you know, I, I know that you know that Liberty Coalition Canada is involved in a number of these uh, a number of these cases. Our our lawyer James Kitchen is doing a fantastic job. But Michael, what are your what are your feelings about next steps and and the legal climate in Canada? What I've been saying the past couple of weeks, uh, Michael, is that I'm cautiously pessimistic. Uh, I don't think we can hope that the that the legal system is going to do its job, but we don't know because. We're still early in the litigation because litigation is slow uh, compared to most things that happen in life. So we are not even at the Court of Appeal in Ontario yet. And I have set up all the cases I'm arguing so that if it's necessary, we can go all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. I've argued at the Supreme Court and I've won there. So I've tried to set up our material so that we have a fighting chance to get there uh, if we do not succeed at the lower levels. Uh, so uh, in that regard, there, there are two things I want to say. One, most lawyers do not want to challenge what is happening right now. My job as a lawyer is to rock the boat um, and, and to do it reasonably and rationally. But uh, most, the vast majority of my colleagues don't want to do that. 
in relation to uh, COVID and the injections. In fact, I've got a, a classmate, friend of mine, who runs uh, arguably the top personal injury firm in the country. I went to him about representing somebody who was vaccine injured. They don't even want to talk to me about it. Because if they get involved in this controversy, that could be bad for business. So we have people putting money ahead of ethics, and I think putting money uh, ahead of their duty as lawyers. So there are not a lot of people who are really, <laughs> I can probably count the lawyers on one or two hands that I know in the country who are truly fighting this thing. I think it's important for people to understand that we have to have a multi-pronged strategy. And at least at my end, we do at the moment. We have to fight on the legal front. We have to fight on the political front. We have to talk to our neighbors. Um, we have to take a, a wide range of steps here um, to, to try to undo this, uh, this narrative and the oppressive policies that uh, have been foisted upon us. Uh, I'm involved in a couple of criminal investigations right now. So we're looking at, at it from the criminal angle as well. So it is, it's a, it's a multi-pronged, multi-factorial, as some people like to call it, approach that I think gives us the best hope of succeeding in this. And so I, I get up every day, I'm angry, uh, but I am hopeful that if we attack on all fronts, that we might uh, eventually undo this, this horrible situation that has been imposed upon us. Well, I want to thank all of you for coming on and, and, and uh, talking so eloquently and uh, passionately. I, I'm so thankful for your voices. I, I'm pretty excited when you talk about a multi-prong approach. I'm, I'm pretty excited that here at Liberty Coalition Canada, we are we are we have legal analysis. We are trying to get into social media, and we're we're trying. You know, sorry, we have legal action. We have, we're trying to get into the analysis, the news analysis side, and and then and then also you know, encouraging individuals to get involved politically, um, because I think you'll all agree with this. We. We need a mass army of moral people to reclaim the country. And uh, it is, you know, one of the things that has been the scariest about this entire thing is how, how people will put their head down and just let the machine roll over. And so, um, I'm, ex I'm encouraged that, you know, Michael, you'd even give that that advice as a lawyer. I know that that's something similar to what James would say. So th thanks again for being one of those lawyers who's sticking your neck out uh, beside uh, these doctors who are who are also doing that. So everybody, thank you would go and just, oh, no, go ahead, go ahead, Michael. I, I'll let you have I the just, last word. I just wanted to add one thing that, um, you know, brings us together as citizens and as Christians. You know, Christianity and, and uh, our legal system are based on beliefs in freedom and equality. You know, that we we can make a choice to be our better selves or our lesser selves, um, that we are all equal in the eyes of God. These are our principles that are have been expressed um, in our constitutional law uh, on both sides of the border, by the way. And so, you know, what I do as a lawyer every day is I try to take those principles of, of freedom and equality and make them work and translate them into our legal system in a way that, that vindicates our freedom and our fundamental equality. And so this is a, a battle that you can fight as a concerned citizen. It's a battle that you can and should fight as a Christian. And so I think that we have a basis here for uniting the entire country 
in, in what we're trying to do. Wow, I really appreciate that. I, I articulate that in the idea of reintroducing people to two very important biblical concepts, the concept of law and the concept of love. The rule of law, where where we get our definitions and parameters, and the rule of uh, love, where we are caring for our neighbors. And and so, uh, no, I appreciate that, Michael. And and I know, and I hear that in in all of you. I, I, I we we all haven't had a deep uh, personal worldview conversations, but I I certainly hear that reflected. Uh, in your actions, and I, I appreciate that on these issues, uh, you, you doctors have been uh, upholding uh, those those traditional legal, ethical, moral standards in medicine, and I, I really appreciate that. So, uh, everybody, please share this video out. It's 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 an important time to keep sharing. Uh, we we don't see a lot of coverage in in the mainstream media about these ongoing cases that are so important to your civil liberties. And uh, I know that that is something that you can do as a citizen is get these videos out on social media and share. Uh, Mark, you've got one last, uh, I'm going to give you the last word. I'm literally not going to say anything like subscribe or like or anything after you literally will have the last word. Oh no, I'd like your speaking more. But anyways, I just wanted to mention <clears throat> Anyone who wants to uh, help, uh, particularly in in supporting this fight for the people of Ontario against the College of Physicians of Ontario, um, easiest way to find the, the action and, and to donate as well. It's not going to uh, us, it's going to the legal fight, is to go to takeactioncanada.ca where you will find the action on the, the front page along with a lot of other things, including opportunities for people to volunteer and help save our country. Go to takeaction.ca. You made me a liar because I had to speak. Um, is take, we really appreciate it. Everybody, yeah, it's true. We need to raise money for all of these legal fights. Liberty Coalition Canada raises money to, to help support James and his legal uh, pursuits. And uh, it's a real reality for lawyers to be able to step out and do this. They need the resources to do it. So take action, Canada.ca. Yes. Okay. Everybody, thanks so much for listening and share this video widely. Thanks, everybody. Godspeed. Thanks and blessings. Thanks, Michael.